listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. So, Lindsay, thank you for drawing our attention to this. I don't like writing sermon titles, and so uh, can you go to my first slide there, if you would, please, Kristen? Normally, most weeks, I'm sitting at the, the, the computer, you know, putting in my notes, and I'm like, insert sermon title here. That's what I want to put. Today, my sermon title is called Today's Teaching Text. <laughs> what we're going to do is study the Bible together, okay? And it's a feast that is laid out before us. I'm, I'm so delighted to share it with you. As we get ready to read the scriptures together, and we're going to cover some serious ground, I want us to be, to be ready for it. So we're going to share this prayer together. I invite you to pray this with me. Gracious God and most merciful Father, you have granted us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Assist us with your spirit, that the same word may be written in our hearts for our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up and edify us into the perfect dwelling place of your Christ, sanctifying and increasing in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, my wife Emily and I are readers. I start a lot of books. I don't always finish them. Are there a lot of book starters in the room? Okay, okay. Uh, but we love to read, and, and we're, you know, we're moved by truth. We're moved by beauty. And so, so there will be these moments where Emily and I are reading, and we just have to read to each other some selection of, of whatever it is that we're reading. Uh, Emily, what is she reading right now? I can't remember for the life of me. Uh, it's one of it's in the Anne of Green Gables series, and there was just this beautiful, beautiful book in the uh, series uh, selection in the second or third book that was just lovely. And but we found a point of frustration in reading selections of books to each other. That you know you have this emotional response to your reading, and you want to share it with this person who's important to you, and you often find in reading it to them that they're like, "Yeah, that's great. <laughs> we'll we'll try this out right now." And all the host laughed and wept, and in the midst of their merriment and tears, the clear voice of the minstrel rose like silver and gold, and all the men were hushed. And he sang to them, now in the elven tongue, if you know me, you know where this is going. <laughs> now in the speech of the West, until their hearts, wounded with sweet words, overflowed, and their joy was like swords. And they passed in thought out to regions where pain and delight flow together. And tears are the very wine of blessedness. Now, if the world were just, you'd all be weeping right now. <laughs> but unfortunately, what I've learned is that you just can't communicate the weight of it if you didn't read all of the words that happened before it. 
And so uh, today in John chapter 11, we have a feast that we are going to savor, but we have to go through a couple of courses to get to the main course so that when we get there, we can just suck the marrow out of it and, and appreciate the beauty of the scriptures all pointing to Jesus. In my undergrad at ORU, so I have some ORU students here this morning, I studied with uh, Dr. Ed Watson, who, who uh, taught Johannine literature, which means everything that, that John the Evangelist wrote. And Dr. Watson, who's been a part of our church and I think listens to the podcast while he's at his lake house, um, Dr. Watson was the first to really turn me on to the reality that these, these spirit-inspired authors of scripture also happens to be phenomenal writers. That God took these people who had natural gifting and, and honed skills and he inspired them to communicate the, the weight of the glory of Jesus Christ. And John is just an incredibly gifted writer and storyteller, really chief among those skilled in the New Testament. And he organized his telling of the story of Jesus by employing you know, various literary devices in such a way that the reader is meant to be just overcome by the truth and the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ and have this response as if they had been in the front row seeing him for themselves. And John, at the end of his gospel, tells the, the, kind of the, the purpose of the whole thing. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, not recorded in this book, but these things have been written. So that you, the reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. As we begin reading John's gospel, an interpretive key for us, really making the most of our reading, is to read John's gospel geographically. To appreciate a bit of the layout of the land of Israel. If this is the land of Israel, we have up here at the top the Sea of Galilee, the region of Galilee, Bethlehem, where Jesus is born, the north of Israel. And toward the bottom, but above the desert, we've got Jerusalem and Judea. And in John's gospel, Jesus is always going back and forth between the two. And if we read John's gospel with a view toward geography, there's something really important that's heightened for us. It's especially when Jesus goes to Jerusalem. When Jesus goes to uh, Jerusalem, he's going to the seat of the temple. Uh, I had several friends in the church who just returned from Israel. And I remember the first time, well, the only time I've been to Israel is up on the Mount of Olives. The first time I was really seeing the city of Jerusalem, and there's the Temple Mount. And even as it is, you're, you're, like, your, your eyes are full of this incredible vista. You have to think of, wow, when the, when the temple, even especially the first temple, had been standing there, what an overwhelming experience it must have been. The Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 120 and onward about making their way, people making their way, pilgrims up toward Jerusalem and there to the temple because it was awe-inspiring. Anytime Jesus goes to Jerusalem, we have to remember he's going to the seat of the temple. He's going to the center of the center of the center of the land of promise, the land that God had given Abraham and his descendants. He's also going to a place where the differences and the tensions between various sects of Judaism are the most pronounced. We have the zealots who want to call for a, 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 um, a, a violent overthrow of the Roman occupiers. We have the Essenes, people like John the Baptist, who may not be present in the city, but their presence is felt, who are withdrawing and just waiting for Armageddon, waiting for like the battle to end the world. We've got the Pharisees who are contending for ritual purity. If we're really pure and we obey Torah, then God will finally come and rescue us. 
You have the Sadducees who are like the upper class elite who oversee the temple, and then you have the Herodians who are like the compromisers with Rome, gaining a little clout and authority for themselves. There's an acute debate, uh, especially between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, about the topic of resurrection. The Pharisees believed that at the end of the age there would be one general great resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees said there's no such thing. And it was one of those never-ending debates that was never resolved. There are people, you've been in churches with these kind of people who love to debate the unsolvable issues. You know, about like, to what degree do we participate in our own salvation? Calvinism versus Arminianism. There are people who want to argue about things like, you know, infant baptism or grace versus works or uh, can you lose your salvation? I was a theology student, never enjoyed those kind of conversations. I can have them, but they're not fun. It's not fun to be around people who just want to argue. Now, some of you are like, actually, I think it's a lot of fun. But this conversation about, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was never-ending, and it was a real point of tension. In addition to all of this, the, the sects, the groups within Judaism, Jerusalem was also the place where the tension between Jews and the Roman occupiers is the most precarious. And for the people of Israel, having already suffered the mortal wound of losing the first temple in 587, 586 B.C., they, they had this kind of collective PTSD, and there was a fear of ever having another rerun of losing the temple again. It was the thing that they feared most of all. So here's something, a key insight and understanding how John tells the story of Jesus is that in Jerusalem, you take care what you say and you take care what you do. Because whatever you say and whatever you do could quickly erupt into something that turns violent and deadly. And Jesus is not unaware of this. In fact, there are numerous times throughout the, the gospel, five times that we have in John's gospel, where Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. And Jesus, being the most brilliant person who ever lived, orchestrated events in such a way that the crescendo resounded at just the right moment so that everyone with eyes to see and everyone with ears to hear could see the, the glorious and beautiful thing that God the Father was doing in and through the person of Jesus to reconcile the world to himself. Uh, what God was doing in Jesus was making the fullness of life in the kingdom of God, what Jesus called having eternal life, available to those who believe here and now. In John's Gospel, Jesus has his first visit to the temple uh, to, to pick a fight. John chapter 2. When it was time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords. Now pause there for just a minute. When you go into the Christian bookstore and you look for paintings of Jesus, in all likelihood you're going to see, you know, European white, shining Jesus with a lamb on his shoulders, or maybe you see Jesus blessing the children. What I want to see is a culturally accurate like painting of Jesus making his whip. <laughs> and if there were a part two, Jesus like mid-kick with the table going down. That's the painting of Jesus we'll hang up at our church. <laughs> maybe we won't. People might get the wrong idea. Jesus, in the temple, makes a whip out of cords. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? I'm going to go, you know. 
He drove off from the temple courts sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. He comes back again at another festival time. We don't know if it's, if it's Pentecost, if it's Purim, but Jesus goes back to Jerusalem in John chapter 5 with trips home to Galilee in between. In John chapter 5, it says, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, healing people, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. They're like, where's his death? Oh, that's what he's talking. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, healing people on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus returns to Galilee. He makes his third visit at the, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles in John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and in a loud voice said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Everyone spiritually thirsty has flocked to Jerusalem, and Jesus is rerouting all of them to himself. Whoever believes in me, says Jesus, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not been glorified. And on hearing his word, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. They're hearkening back to Deuteronomy chapter 18 when God, through Moses, promises that a prophet like Moses is one day to come among the people. And they're like, is this the Deuteronomy 18 guy? Others said he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Doesn't the scripture say the Messiah will come from David's descendants and be from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And the people were divided because of Jesus. On this same visit to Jerusalem in the next chapter, uh, Jesus continues his ministry of healing and teaching. And the Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Not possessed by a demon, said Jesus. But I honor the Father, and you dishonor me. Not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my words will never see death. Again, this theme of resurrection, immortality. At this they exclaimed, now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, and yet you say that whoever obeys your words will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? People often say more than they realize they're saying in John's gospel. He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus responded, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of, my, of seeing my day. He saw and was glad. You're not even 50 years old, they said, and you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. I am, kind of echoing those words. When, when Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3 said, okay, I'll go back, but who shall I tell the people who has sent me? God says, tell them I am has sent me. In Greek, these words are ego emi. Jesus is saying it himself, ego emi, I am. At this, what do they do? They pick up stones and they're ready to kill him, but he slips away from their grasp. 
Right after this, he heals the man who had been born blind that we talked about in recent weeks. And then we come to Jesus' fourth visit to Jerusalem. He's there and back. He's there and back. He waits for those moments where there's peak attendance, where the city is crammed full of people, crammed full of attention, crammed full of energy and excitement. Jesus leverages these moments to start a conversation, to evoke a response. And finally, in, in John 10, he goes at the time of Hanukkah. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking around Solomon's colonnade, and the Jews who were gathered around him saying, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, Well, actually, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, for I and the Father are one. After this, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus retreats across the Jordan River. Every time he goes, he waits for these peak moments of intensity, energy, and he heightens them with his presence. He provokes them. It's like he's picking at a scab. He's, he's, he's bringing this conversation, this conflict to the fore, and everybody is wondering, when is the pot finally going to boil over? And that prepares us to hear today's text in John chapter 11. So grab a Bible in front of you. And we're going to read uh, most of John chapter 11, which on every Bible in the room that's in the pew except for one, it's on 1529. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. Where's Bethany? Here's our map. Here's Galilee up here. Here's Jerusalem down here, two miles this direction. Jesus has left after picking a fight, only to sneak back in, and he's in the outskirts. He's, he's in the suburbs. He was in Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord. This happens in John chapter 12, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. A bit of a confusing detail. You'd think when he heard that he was sick, he would hightail it out of there. He says, no, he waited two days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. They're like, hey, you appreciate that this could be a consequential visit. And Jesus says, well, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he'd said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. They don't know what he's talking about. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. 
Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I don't think I read this rightly until this week. Jesus appreciates, well, Thomas certainly appreciates. Jesus is probably going to get stoned, and we as his disciples are going to get stoned with him. So he's like, all right, we're going to die. Let's just get it over with. I think that is the proper spirit to read Thomas here. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. He's good and dead. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Listen to the candor and also the faith of Martha. I love this. He said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Here's this conversation. Are the Pharisees right? Are the Sadducees right? Is there a resurrection? Martha goes with the Pharisees. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, ego emi. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. After she said this, she went back inside and called her sister Mary and said, the teacher's here. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this. She got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews, who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Now, it's been four days that Lazarus has died. You have to think in their world it's going to take a couple of days, or it's at least going to take a hot minute for the word to get to friends in Jerusalem that, hey, Lazarus has died. Take a couple more days, perhaps, for those friends to get back. And as Jesus arrives, four days after Lazarus has passed away, a crowd has gathered of people who were from Jerusalem. And this crowd is watching everything that's about to go on. Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Where is he? Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And there at the tomb, heartbroken with these heartbroken sisters, Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? And Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man. By this time, there's a bad odor. He's been in there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked up, fully cognizant of everyone around him. The biases, the hopes they may have about him. Jesus standing in front of the tomb with the door open as the smell begins to hit their nose. Praise aloud, Father, I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, so that you may believe that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen, a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off those grave clothes and let him go. It all leads to this. Therefore, many of the Jews who'd come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, saying, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up saying, you don't know anything at all. You don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. And from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Here's what I want you to appreciate. It's his fifth time there. And Jesus is the master of reading the moment. What I want you to see in all of this is that Jesus has deliberately put wheels in motion that are going to lead to his death. It did not catch him off guard. It did not surprise him. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus is the ultimate instigator, the supreme actor, the agent. He is the master architect of time who has let the tension mount until he ultimately, ultimately lets it break over himself. For Mary and Martha looking for an answer to their grief, and for Lazarus looking for life, for the Pharisees looking for purity, for the Herodians looking for power, for the Sadducees looking for a sacrifice, for the Essenes looking for Armageddon and the end of the world, the end of the world as they know it is drawing near as Jesus more freely unveils his glory. The hopes and fears of all the people are zeroing in on Jesus and what's about to happen with him. There's no more messianic secret where he heals people and says, now don't tell anybody about it. There's no more hiding under a bushel. The one who gives sight to the blind also raises the dead. It also happens to be the great I am, a go am me. I am the resurrection and the life deliberately hearkening back to those words in Exodus chapter 3, deliberately poking at the, the unbelief of the religious leaders. Jesus is pure provocation. And when the people living in darkness, who are accustomed to the darkness, suddenly have a light shined on them, they, were, they, were, they quail at the light, and the, the thing they want to do more than anything is to extinguish it. And so immediately on hearing that there is one who can raise the dead, they immediately put into motion plans to kill him. Death is the ultimate enemy of the tyrant. And what do you do with someone who can overturn death? Jesus is the light that is shining in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Now, reading John chapter 11 in the, the broader story of John's gospel, what strikes me is that Jesus knows how all the parts fit together to make one cohesive whole. He knew. 
He knew the button to press. He knew he could push it just to the edge and this would send things, the first domino to fall leading to his own crucifixion. Jesus knows how all the parts fit together to make a cohesive whole. He knows the hearts of all people. He knows what his father has sent him to do. And pretty much everyone else is left scratching their heads. And Jesus is unsurprised by any of it. Now, I want you to think back about this scene at the tomb, and I want you to read yourself into the story and think, who in the story do you most closely identify with? As you think about our life of faith, you think about like the, the, the spectacle that is living as a person in the world right now. Who, who in this story do you most closely identify with? Maybe you're among the disciples. who are, you're, you're along for the ride. You're not really sure how the whole thing's going to shake out or what comes next. You trust Jesus. You have a certain degree of commitment. But you need him to make your next steps clear. You're like... I don't know what he's going to do next. I think he's going to figure it out. You need someone to tell you what to do. Maybe in the story you identify with Lazarus and you feel like a person, like your heart is decaying. Psalm 130 says, my whole being waits for the Lord. Like it's not just my heart, my brain, my body, every ounce of who I am is like crying out for God to come and fix how jacked up our world has become. Maybe you feel like your body or your spirit or your hope is growing dry and the memory of not suffering or not being sad or feeling a sense of joy is fading and you need someone to come and jumpstart your heart again. Maybe you feel a bit like the crowds. You're um, a spiritual spectator. You're looking for a philosophy of life. One of my favorite songwriters said, there are hundreds of ways to get through the day, just find one. Maybe you're just looking for a way to get through the day. You may have mixed allegiances. You're open to Jesus, but you're kind of like cool with doing your own thing too. I had a conversation with a new friend this week, a person I'm coming to really care about, who had heard some of the teaching of Scripture and the demands of Christ and independent of knowing the love of God, interpreted these things as being like overly burdensome or impossible or insulting or judgmental. And I just wished I could like put into her heart like no like these commands are given to us by a God who loves us so deeply but she finds herself a spectator on the outside or maybe in thinking about the story you're a bit more like Mary and Martha you're on the other side of a loss you know just like Mary knew and just like Martha knew that Jesus could have intervened for you and he didn't you believe in him you know that he is good but you also know that the hurt and the grief and the loss that you feel is very real. It could be that something that you were hoping for, something that you were sure of, fell through. The miracle that you were petitioning earnestly for never came. Maybe you've ended up in a spot where you would have never guessed you, of all people, could possibly be with the death of a dream, the death of a relationship. And you find yourself, as complex as this is, simultaneously both unable not to believe in him and yet bewildered that he hasn't answered your prayer in the way that you were hoping. And you wonder, what could he possibly do for me now that the worst has already happened? For all of us, no matter where you are, I would say to you the words that Jesus said to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? 
I believe that Jesus is still the master architect of time. I believe that Jesus, in looking at all of the broken pieces of your life and my life, all the disparate components of what comprise our existence, is still able to take them broken as they are and turn them into a cohesive whole. I believe that Jesus is still writing a narrative and incorporating into his greater story the very worst parts of our own and weaving them into something more beautiful. And though the human story on the whole seems to be spiraling toward its own destruction, though, as the psalmist says, the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, I believe that there's a twist coming that M. Night Shyamalan himself could not have seen coming. I don't know how he's going to take all of the parts of my story and your story that are wrong and don't make any sense and turn it into a cohesive whole. I don't know how he's going to do it. But I'll tell you, I think he's going to do a real good job. This much I do know. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. And if we believe, I believe we will see the glory of God. Let's pray together. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.